Hello and welcome to Crimes Against Art, a podcast brought to you by Edge of the Crowd. I'm here today, your co-host Isabel, and joining me as always, my lovely co-host Michelle. Hello, hello, hello. Here we are, back again and back with one of our possibly favourite topics that content keeps being added to each day, every moment we get a bit more. Even as we've been researching, we've been popping in some new additions to our list and it is restorations, restorations in the art world and more specifically when they don't quite go to plan and we end up with some very comedic moments, some more shenanigans with restoration. So Michelle restoration kick us off what are our thoughts restoration is an interesting one just because like you would expect that most artists when they create their work and especially historically don't make it with the intention of having it last for one of two reasons one they don't think that far into the future because i think when i think very far into the future and i only mean like two years away i go into an existential panic imagine trying to think about whether or not your work is standing after like a hundred years Exactly. I can barely plan my life two weeks in advance. So the fact that something could exist 10 years ahead of time or like or some of these artworks that we're looking at are like from thousands of years ago. Exactly. And you just can't predict. You can't even think, we can't even conceptualize that as a, as a point of time. So when, you know, artworks are created, they're not really created with longevity in mind either just for practical reasons or also conceptually. I know a lot of sort of contemporary art's all about the sort of ephemeral nature. And, yeah, you know. definitely. And also, like, you know, they care about the effect and the vibe of the now. Like, I'm going yeah. to do this because it looks good now, not do I think this will last? Because, like, a lot of artists definitely know that they're top dog, like they are the best of the best, the one on everyone's minds, takes a certain level of ego. And it's the kind of ego yes. that you more or less associate with conquerors who get statues made after them or yeah. like buildings erected in their name or mm -hmm. like uh, specific rulers who decide to have months of the calendar year named after them. You know, like, Why not? Like, 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 like concrete stuff, like Go off. everlasting yeah, like art is always sort of a reaction to the time and to think that that would be relevant hundreds, thousands of years in the future. I mean, I would love some of that sort of dedication and confidence in my own work. I think that would really get me far in life. If I could yeah. think, hmm, what I'm doing today will really be of national and international importance, global significance in a thousand years. Exactly. Like, go off. We are all just a blip. Because these works have sort of resonated for so long and they aren't always made to last that long, we, you know, we do have restoration and art restoration as a very specific and highly skilled career path, which is not always fully appreciated. It's like twofold, right? You have the conservation side of it and then you have the restoration. So it's like preemptive protection and post-damage. And conservation, I think most people have their heads around a little bit more. It's like the reason why you can't use flash photography in a museum. It's why you can't touch the artworks in a museum because your grubby little fingies will yeah. get gross little oils that help deteriorate works. It's why works fade quickly in the sunlight and we are aware of this. It's why yeah. we need to bubble wrap everything <laughs> all the time to make sure it doesn't get damaged. Mm. That side is pretty easy to understand. And I think people in general do understand the need for restoration, but kind of yeah. the effort that goes into restoration is less understood. 
Yeah. And I also think it's not just restoration, you know, brings up the practical concerns like, oh, how are we going to ensure this artwork exists for more than a few years? But I think it also brings up the questions of like, well, what is the artwork? What about it do we want to preserve? You have this work that used to exist in a different time in a different context. And now you're in a position where you inevitably probably have to change something about it Mm. for a variety of reasons and you now have the choice of change and the debate of what change is the right change to make yes and that gets real contentious when you get academics historians the general public institutions everyone involved because i think we all agree on the importance of maintaining these works for for future you know generations to enjoy or just because we like them but i think when it gets down to how we do it is where you know all these arguments and debates come and i think that has really come into popular attention especially this year with someone who's frequently in our news feeds miss kim kardashian yes madame kim madame kim where she attended the met gala wearing Marilyn Monroe's very famous dress. It was sort of a nude, sheer, crystal-encrusted dress um, that Marilyn Monroe wore to sing happy birthday to then-president John F. Kennedy. Correct. So a very iconic dress. Kim Kardashian wore it. I would say the dress is what, dare I say, almost 80 years old. I would say so. Yeah, about that. Um, And she wore it to the Met Gala. And everyone on the internet had a lot of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Initial thoughts, feelings, reactions, Michelle. Listeners to the podcast may not know. I want to grow up to be Andrew Bolton one day. And Andrew yes. Bolton curates the Met Gala. So I care a lot about fashion exhibitions. I care a lot about fashion that enters museum collections. And I do spend a lot of time thinking about the best ways to display fashion after it's entered the museum collection, knowing that for conservation reasons, basically, that once a garment has entered the collection, it can no longer be worn on the human body again. In terms of fashion, that's the most easy to understand how counterintuitive that is, because we think about fashion as belonging on the body, in movement, while dancing or swaying around on models on the catwalk, things like that. So we understand that like taking that away from the experience really means that you miss out on a lot of what makes fashion fashion. In this case, this dress was owned by Ripley's. Which Ripley's, um, believe it or not. Yes. So hardly a museum. They are a private. They're privately owned. They're not beholden to codes of ethics. Yes, I guess that govern opinion. other public museum bodies that need to appease governments, cultural institutions, communities, and councils, and that kind of thing. But even outside of that, I think my immediate thoughts about Kim Kardashian wearing this dress is that one, this was supposed to be a nude dress that Marilyn Monroe was sewn into, and. Feel free to try to disprove me on this, but I'm pretty set in my impression that Kim Kardashian both has a different skin tone and a different body type to Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I think that's a very easy case to make. And I'm not sure if you've seen some of the videos of the fitting Kim Kardashian into this dress, but it just is almost horrifying to watch as she should have shimmied into this dress. And you can see the fabric straining over her because it was made for... Marilyn Monroe. It was, you know, fitted to her body. It would happen to anyone else to try to put on a dress tailor-made to fit skin tight to someone else's figure. It's just not gonna fit as you would like it to, I'm afraid. Exactly. And it was to the point where, like, 
I'm pretty sure Marilyn Monroe didn't wear undergarments. That's how fitted it was, basically. It it was just that. It was just that. Because anything else would have shown a seam, would have shown, like, the line, the underwire of the bra or whatever that she tried to wear with it. Any kind of hemline that was underneath the dress would have been super visible. That was how skin tight it was. I've also heard that the crystals were sort of placed to accentuate Marilyn Monroe's body was sort of wasn't just sort of random scatterings it was very specifically placed to follow the line of the dress exactly they knew the lighting they knew the occasion and they knew the effect that they wanted and everything was in service of that basically and then I think looking sort of beyond Marilyn in the dress I think it's also the dress within the context of when it was worn and sort of what it represents as a piece of American history of sort of you know uh, JFK's presidency, that sort of post-war America, and that dress as being really emblematic of that time. I think it just really comes down to that it's it's a piece of the material history. And it was made of this silk souffle fabric that I don't think is particularly stretchy, so it's not like it was going to work out in any other way. Kim has mentioned that she had to undergo like pretty severe dieting in order to try to fit into the dress, and even then it yeah. didn't fit correctly Mm. but also this silk souffle is super delicate because it's silk and it did get torn and damaged through kim wearing the dress ripley's has tried to claim that it was like damaged beforehand but like the type of damage that you see is like tugging at the 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 seam of the zipper and stuff which is like happens when you like tug something onto a body which we saw happen to kim and try to pull up a zipper on something that doesn't fit which happened to kim you saw the photos right of how like the back of the dress she wasn't actually fully zipped up in that dress she was kind of laced in and it was why she had that fur shrug covering her butt the entire time Mm. that's where we were at it's just astounding really and i think sets a really awful precedent of museum objects being worn or being used as sort of a novelty item by people that have the social capital, the, you know, media presence, the celebrity to sort of get away with using these museum objects. And it's more about the expectation. Like, people shouldn't expect museum items to be worn or shouldn't see a museum item and think, oh, someone will wear this someday. With fashion, it gets confusing as well because a lot of the exhibited fashion pieces that you might see in an exhibition, like when we recently had the Chanel exhibition in Melbourne, a lot of those did actually come from private collections. They're not actually in the museum collection. And in private collections, that private owner can do whatever they want with that item, basically. They could wear it, they could not wear it, they can ask someone else to wear it for them. Otherwise, it came from the designer's archive. In which case, the designer can choose what to do with it. It's their dress, rightfully so. If Karl Lagerfeld for Chanel makes a dress and Virginie now wants to take a look at it, she can put it on a model, get that model to walk in it. But that's a different scenario because they're probably doing that right next to or in their atelier, which is where they can fix the dress then and there with the couturiers who are trained in the the ways of high dressmaking and get it back to a condition that they're happy with with the materials that they have on hand with the marilyn monroe dress the issue is that silk souffle is not manufactured in america anymore because apparently it's too flammable so it's like not allowed in the country i think it's still made in france or somewhere but basically it would be a real pain to restore it just because that material is so rare now Mm. and what made that material special was how sheer and nude and lightweight it was in order to give off that illusion of mm. being Marilyn's 
skin. So that's where the restoration part comes in, where there is now existing damage on this dress. And we don't know, like, I don't know what they're going to do from here in terms of whether or not they'll restore it, whether or not they'll just make the damage part of the history and be like, Marilyn Monroe wore this dress and then Kim K wore this dress. And this is what it looks like in the aftermath. I think about this a lot because I recently had to look at the Ballet Russe costumes and those are in tatters because Diaghilev was an artistic visionary but also an asshole. So mm. he was like, I want costumes made out of silk to go on tour for months and even though people in the back row of the audience cannot appreciate that it's silk and it's probably a bad idea that it's silk, mm. it's going to be silk so therefore, after the collapse of the company, when you look at the costumes, they're all in tatters. Yeah. But that damage is interesting and it significant. Tells, yeah, it sort of tells a story of Diagla running a ballet company and his vision for the company and how the role of that artistic vision and that strong artistic vision and leadership in that ballet company. And it sort of reflects that. Whereas I'm not so convinced that Kim Kardashian wearing Marilyn Monroe's dress to the Met Gala adds to that. I don't think it reflects the significance of the dress. It feels like a very blippy thing where even in the timeline of any dress, it's like, oh, this happened to it. And in this case, it's made even more egregious to the fact that like in the context of being worn by Kim, it's not a particularly good Met Gala costume. The theme was the Gilded Age, wasn't it? Yeah, the Gilded Age. Um, yeah. And it was in this kind of exhibition about American fashion. Bedazzling is not the same as Gilded. You could make this argument maybe about it being the same kind of idea of superfluous wealth and nouveau richness that was definitely yeah. still around when Marilyn Monroe wore that dress. But it's quite a simple dress where the impact is lost when Kim wears it the way she did. Yeah. And when she went in to eat the meal that you eat at the Met Gala, um, dinner um she changed out of marilyn's dress with marilyn's dna on it fit to marilyn into a replica of the dress and at that point you're just like well why like what why how like yeah. why what was the whole why why do we go through all of that for this you know exactly like um, it's just not a good look she wore the wrong shoes with it <laughs> they were like these sort of like high like perspex platformy things weren't they mm-hmm cool so and the, and the shame was that she did such a good job for camp. Yeah. That's the thing, because I feel like Kim Kardashian, everything I read about her interviews I watch, like she does really sort of appreciate and understand and, and has sort of quite a strong vision and understanding of how clothes and fashion works and how she can use fashion. So it just seems like such a shame to have that opportunity and have it about it being Marilyn Monroe's dress when it should have been about Kim Kardashian's outfit because she has had such strong fashion moments. Exactly. And in this case, it was just like, Ripley's just had to say no to her. Yeah. And she would have come up with like another probably better idea. You need yeah. a little bit of rejection in order to get your final masterwork. I think that's the case. That's what I, you know, someone just needs to say no sometimes. Like there are too many people that just say yes to everything. We need to, we need just have a thought and just say no. So who knows how that restoration is going. Another restoration related issue that has been in the news for the past few years since 2019 is to do with how the restoration of the Notre Dame 
cathedral is going in Paris. There was an unfortunate fire that was just kind of, you know, can't really blame a singular person for that, but it happened and now we have to deal with the aftermath. And it's really emblematic of like when it comes to restoration and rebuilding something, the kinds of issues that restorers encounter. Uh, We had a whole shebang, which was what if we change the dome and the spire of the Notre Dame? Everyone send in your suggestions. And that was horrific because everyone sent in some... They all sent in their suggestions, didn't they? And again, someone just needs to say no. Sometimes crowdsourcing is not the answer. Uh, did they suggest, like, Notre Dame Notre Dame face? Like, did, like, was that a suggestion? I think so. I hope I so. so. There was, I like, would... glass I... domes appeared, like, a very Zaha Hadid does Notre Dame Ooh, thing. <laughs> sexy. Right? So the recent discussion that we're having is about the restoration of the stained glass windows. Mm. And these things take time just because you need to do a lot of research, because it's a very historical object. Paris wants this done by their Olympics in 2024. Oh, babes, you're running out of time. That's a very tight deadline to run. Like, sweetie, have you seen how long it's taken for them to, like, rebuild this Sagrada Familia? Or I mean, build it, I should say. Build it. Like, let's just, I don't know, how long did it take them to actually build the Notre Dame in the first place? Like, dare I say, at least 100 years. Honestly, a lot of time, a lot of effort in order to get it right, which is mm. the main thing here, is, like, we want to get it right. Or, you know, or do we, and then we can just chalk it up to experience and move on with our lives. I, well, I think the Notre Dame one especially is because you see this building that has had undergone changes throughout its lifetime and things have changed within it structurally or externally its aesthetic has changed over time bits have burnt down and been rebuilt so maybe this is an opportunity for to for us to just add our own little 21st century Zaha Hadid extension add that yeah. to its history and why it's also in my mind at the moment why it's living in my brain rent free is because Netflix has released a trailer for a scripted French language miniseries called Notre Dame which is about the 2019 Netflix is just hit after hit after hit I love that a scripted documentary about the Notre Dame fire the series will take audiences on a journey told through the eyes of several characters living in Paris did we ask for this no I don't think so I'm like it's too soon we want this well, like, also, it's like, that's what I, when I sit at home, I don't think to myself, oh, I could really do with a little mini series about arson. Like, it's really not my top tier entertainment category. I mean, what can, what, what will they do in it, do you reckon? Oh, so no, no, no. We know there is a character that's assumed to be a retired fire chief who quickly becomes the face of hope. I don't know. I feel like this is all very fictional. Like, I don't think this is what actually happened. I think this is like, we're, we're pulling a, a Jack and Rose on the Titanic, on the Notre Dame. I, but I feel like the Titanic, <laughs> I don't know whether I could, would compare the Notre Dame fire to the Titanic. Exactly! <laughs> like, did, did anyone die? Like, did anything, did anything, like, dramatic? I mean, obviously the Notre Dame's not doing it great, but I mean, yeah. I feel like it's not something that we really need more cultural commentary on, you know? Exactly. By the looks of it from the trailer and the summaries of it, it's just about the fire itself, not like the aftermath and, like, the, right. the current process of restoration, which, like, babes, wait for it to, like, reopen again before you make a series on it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. soon-to-be retired fire chief, a firefighter who was recently traumatised by the death of her colleague, wants what? to save the cathedral, there's a news anchor who's covering the story, and we're going to hear about what she thinks about all this, and there is just this woman who has a mother who's dying and looking at a building being destroyed that apparently she cares a lot about. Yeah, no lives were lost in this, so we just get these people. I just can't imagine, I mean, maybe it really had a huge 
impact for French people. But I feel like we're sad about it. We prefer if it didn't burn down, but I don't feel like I need to explore my emotions and sentiments around the Notre Dame burning down through a Netflix miniseries. I would agree with that. Like when I think about everything that happened in that ordeal, I think about how fast everyone was to donate money to that. And I was like, you guys had a lot of expendable income to give to an old French cathedral, didn't you? And then I think about whether or not I think the French government is able to manage that kind of money in order to get things done. I mean, they built Versailles. I mean, they they certainly know how to spend money. Yeah, they certainly know how to spend money. Do they know how to spend a set amount of money or can they only spend unlimited amounts of money? Um, have I ever seen that article about like Emmanuel Macron and how he spends his like monthly, I want, dare I say, beauty and wellness budget? Because it's like, it's, it's extensive. Mmm, skincare. Well, you know, he's only paying like one euro for a coffee and two euro for a croissant, whereas like we're over here in Oz. That's true. Coming up to spending like $10 on a coffee and a croissant. Mm. It's dire. Like, I want to watch a Netflix documentary about that. Like, the price of a croissant in Australia (laughs) is just simply incomprehensible. Like, when can I leave, you know? Honestly, if it weren't for how tasty our water is, I would be in Paris right now. Because their water tastes garbage. It does. It does. No wonder they drink all that bottled water. I know. It's like, I understand the obsession with San Pellegrino's over there now. Even, like, bottled still water. I'm like, you know what? I'm not against it when in Paris. (laughs) So yeah, the Notre Dame has that to look forward to. Another part of our lockdown experience, there was like this moment, I remember, when everyone was really, really obsessed with watching those art restoration videos, which were of restorers cleaning off old varnish of artworks in order to reveal like the vibrancy of the painting underneath, right? They're very satisfying. And that sort of awe and haze of the old masters suddenly reveal something completely different and yeah it kind of points out two things one of which is like once upon a time these were the contemporary paintings of their day so you shouldn't just think of them as being like crusty dusty and stodgy Mm. and a lot of that just comes from the fact that they are old objects right Mm. so once you peel back that varnish and you get to see how bright the colors were and how like fun they were and the little nuances and details, it does make you realise, oh, this was once, like, a brand new thing and it was pretty cool when it was made, right? Yeah, like, you really get to see it as, like, a contemporary piece of art as it was originally painted. It's really exciting to see all those, like, laser history being wiped back and it's just so satisfying. And then I think the second part that's really cool about those videos is that they're basically evidence of what a good restoration ethic and system looks like because one of the founding core principles of restorers is basically don't do anything to a work that's not reversible and the varnish that is being taken off these paintings a lot of the time is varnish that was maybe put on like 50 years ago by a previous restorer who made the choice based on the knowledge at the time to put on something that they could strip away from the painting without damaging the pigments underneath so that in the future a new layer of varnish could be put on so people can see the painting in its natural glory yeah yeah i think that's that idea of restoration work that is reversible and that in future generations can it doesn't necessarily have to be like restored to some like original glory but just being prevented from further degradation i think exactly because in the case of some works it's that you literally can't find the materials and pigments and things that were used to create the original work or you don't want to I, for one, do not believe that we should be reintroducing lead into our artworks if not needed, even if it's that's what the OG is used. It's authentic. It's authentic. We need to do what is authentic to the time. Restoration 
authentic materials. I believe you have a nice anecdote about original materials, perhaps egg and another certain favourite artist. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's talk about Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci. Da Vinci. Da Vinci. And, of course, I'm talking about da Vinci. Take it away, Michelle. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper is a very famous artwork that is very, very deteriorated at the Mm -hmm. moment. And if you ask why, if you asked me, Michelle, why that is, I would tell you that's because Leonardo was a little asshole turtle. People know, obviously, that Leonardo is this kind of, like, genius mastermind kind of thing. He loved to, like, think about new inventions and cut up bodies in order to figure out their anatomy, in order to draw them more accurately and stuff. He is very into knowledge. It should come to no surprise, then, that he also was really keen on experimentation in his art materials and creating pigments and uh, mixtures for his frescoes, which is what The Last Supper is. Is. The medium of Last Supper is basically an oil tempera mix applied to a drywall. And he did that because he wanted it to look like an oil painting. But like you can't really paint with oil painting on a wall and expect it to last because oil paints inherently take ages to set. And a lot of them basically don't set down because it's oil, right? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the whole point, is it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So he wanted that effect, but he he couldn't use oil paintings on a commission for for this drywall. So he had to use tempera instead. But this was something that began deteriorating in his lifetime. And why is that? It's because he used tempera, which was pretty common in his time. It was used before oil painting as we know it with the subsequent masterworks. And it uses an emulsion, the Italian's favourite thing, clearly. Uh, Mm. of water egg yolks or whole eggs with the pigments so imagine that on a wall in broad daylight just vibing just vibing and i and i assume it's not not in like a climate controllable art museum is it either no it's in a in a church (laughs) in a church excellent i think that's the ideal conditions for it yeah so that's kind of something where he was looking for an effect he was keen on experimentation The extent that he cared about longevity, negligible. Did he know he was a genius? Possibly. Did he want this to last? He didn't really think that far. And Mm. here we are, like, centuries later, with this poor painting on life support, basically, trying Mm. to keep what's left of it. And we're left in this really weird ship of Theseus situation where there's very much like a small percentage of that OG Leonardo goodness in that painting. A lot of it is like uh, restored paintings over it by other people later it's still a great work we've tried our best with it does it have the aura of leonardo in it who knows who's to say but that's an example of how there is only so much restoration can do and when it comes to specific materials that really aren't made to last even like a year that's just the nature of these artworks and restoration can only do so much now, yeah. I think might not, might be good to talk about now is when restoration goes too far, when restoration does the most, some yeah. of our wonderful restoration failures. Yes. Like we mentioned, restoration is hard and not everyone's good at it. It takes a lot of research, right. it takes a lot of skill. Even some of the most skilled people can make mistakes. Yes. And sometimes we let amateurs restore things. So let's talk about the king of restoration boo-boos, the meme of all memes, 
take it away, Isabel. Monkey Jesus. Monkey Jesus. Yes. Monkey Jesus, you may have seen it already pop up in the algorithm on TikTok, on Instagram, on the news. It's basically the restoration of this painting of Jesus called Eke Omo, Hold the Man, in a church in Boya, Spain. The work itself was painted in about 1930 by Elias Garcia Martinez and it was restored by Cecilia Jimenez. You know, it, ha it hung in her local church, it needed to be restored, she put her hand up, and why not? The fresco has now become known as Monkey Christ, Monkey Jesus, because what was a painting of a crucified Jesus looking up to the skies, looking up to the heavens, now becomes a very distorted vision of humanity. <laughs> it is a <laughs> shell of its former self. And also, I think we can all relate to just that deep horror that resides in those eyes. Yes. I'm looking at it now, and I'm just filled with some, like, primal fear, honestly. Yeah. Cecilia Jimenez was a local teacher. And this is, like, in a church. For people who go to churches, which is many people, they're very communal spaces. Some of them are very old. If you're in Europe, you probably are more likely to go to an old church than if you are in Australia, where um, we're not that old None. <laughs> as a country. So all of our buildings uh, can't be as old as the ones that this painting resided in. And if you think about like your community church, most of the work that is done to maintain it and to keep it functioning is done by the community. Yeah. So this is just a case where they've taken that a step further and been like, oh, this fresco is looking a bit shoddy. Is anyone able to do anything about it? And you would hope that maybe you had like an artist or someone who was skilled in artworks to take a jab at it if they dared. But in this case, we didn't. Our resulting painting, what, 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 what can we say about it? Basically, it's just a lot of the nuances stripped out of it. A lot of the delicacy in the features is flattened. Even the background, which is just this kind of ambient, faded, neutral colour, but you can see the effect of the heavenly light on yeah, it. Yeah. And subtle reflections, maybe, in Christ's hair. And those kinds of things are basically disregarded, ignored, just not there anymore. The shape of the hair is changed. Um, I'm struggling to understand. I think some of it's meant to be like his thorned crown. It's the area under the chin that confuses me. because it's the neck beard, it's isn't shadow. it? Yeah. Hmm. It's like shadow mixed with neck beard mixed with hair. But they're all the same warmth of brown. And warm hmm. brown is not what I associate with shadow. But, you know, I think it's had, had a lot of success. It's brought a lot of tourism into the area. And I think it was a painting for the community. And I think the community's taken with it and run and made it what it needed to be. How many Jesus paintings do we have? So many. All of the Western canon. How many monkey Christs do we have? Just the one. Just the one. In the beginning, there was Jesus fan art and Jesus fan art only in the story of European art making because a lot of this art, including the stuff done by Da Vinci, the rest of the Ninja Turtles, was commissioned by the people with the money, in which case was a lot of the time the church. And in a time when most people couldn't read or could read very little, pictures was the best way to communicate the Bible across with yeah. the corresponding readings by monks and parishioners and those kinds of people who could read. Yeah. 
So there were some consequences involved and there were attempts at reversing the damage, but this is very much a case of there is so much of this kind of stuff out there. It's good that we still have record of the original before it was deteriorated so we do know what it could look like. And like, let's be real, like a pretty skilled painter today could probably recreate the original to a fairly good degree. And would we go see it? Probably yeah. not, you know? I've seen a lot of the Jesus works. They're okay. Mm-hmm. I've never seen another monkey Christ that has made me feel such deep fear. <laughs> exactly. Really. And you do need people who are professional restorers. And ideally, they would be accessible to anyone who needs them to help with fixing up old and damaged works of art that are in precarious conditions. Yeah. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, that's not exactly the case. Part of the reason why the principle of reversibility is there is because I think the restorers also know, like, I don't have enough time to do this properly. I don't have the resources to do this properly. I don't have the technology to do this properly. But maybe 50 years later, they do. So yeah. they should be able to undo what I did in order to do it better. I think that's a good ideal to begin with and to sort of base restoration on. Another area of restoration that I think has been living in both our minds is the yassification. Oh, the, the yassification of sculpture. The yassification of sculpture. And this happens in two fields, I think. There is the statues and sculptures that exist that are already painted and coloured. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that painting just gets dull. So you just need to recolor it. And usually dullness in painting means like some colors fade more quickly than others. So you are less certain and more ambiguous about where those colors go. Mm -hmm. And then other colors are still there. So you don't have to work as much with them. So let's talk about this St. Anthony of Padua statue that exists in Soledad, Colombia. Absolutely. In restoration and the ideals of what a painting should look like, our ideas and our concepts of what our images and tropes of the various characters and figures and icons and gods and that are depicted often come into play whether or not we think what emotion that they're expressing what they look like what they symbolize this is the entire like virgin mary not virgin mary innocent mary not innocent mary comes from like that yeah. symbology is communicated to us via color via gesture via lines in artworks this is fun because in this case we have saint anthony this is a statue that needed to be repaired due to termite damage. Like, you know, when bugs get to exist the way that they want, they have no concept of sacred art. No. Um, art must not be touched. Yeah. Uh, art must not be damaged. We can't blame the termites for this. They're just like, <laughs> nom, 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 delicious wood. Yeah. Clearly, when it got taken to do the repairs, they had also decided to give St. Anthony a little facelift. A little makeover. And I think they were less following the ethical standards and standard practice of restoration and more following a makeup tutorial from circa 2016, glam night out with the gals. We have a beautiful little smoky eye. We have your classic, not blocky, but definitely filled in. Defined. Defined. Brows. Tadpole-like in shape at the front, not too much of an arch. We have a beautiful mix of sort of a nice bright pink blush, but sort of also a bit of a contour, a bit of a bronzer situation as well. I almost will say like a bit of a duochrome eyeshadow as well. Like I yeah. think Urban Decay has possibly sponsored this restoration. This is basically a smoky eye. By the looks of it, they've also decided to glam up the baby a little bit as well. 
Yeah, just like a little touch of blush. I mean, who doesn't look good? It really lifts the face. They're like, you know, babies are blushing. Babies are like cherubic. We should make this baby look like a cherub. They also both look like they've had a spray tan. They've both been hitting the Saint-Tropez. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, we've got some bronzer action going, some Saint-Tropez action going. Mm. And in this case, it's very much a restoration that looks dated very, very quickly. Monkey Jesus is forever now. Like, Monkey like, Jesus sends time. will outlive us all. Honestly. He's been here before time. Dare I say she didn't restore it. She actually unveiled its true character. And yep. it's going to continue and outlive us all. And here he is, serving and ready to slay. <laughs> he is serving and ready to slay yep. in tart-shaped tape we trust, you know, our Lord and Saviour, makeup by Mario. Look, Kim Kardashian, really omnipresent. The reason why we have this Instagram face, this all, all this sculpting and contouring, we yeah. can only attribute it to her. Yeah, I think so. Cultural figures, cultural figures. We have our yassification of coloured sculptures by brightening the colour in certain places where we can discuss whether or not that colour is needed there specifically. But we also have a lot of sculptures that were made in a material and not painted at all, unpainted mm -hmm. sculptures. And these are very, very common, or we think they're very common at least, in the, the canon of Western art. We think yeah. of our Greek and Roman sculptures, our marble sculptures as being white, basically. Yes, that one scene in 2005, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, what a great movie. A vision. Absolute beautiful movie. And in that case, yeah, the sculptures are all white and they were made to be white. But historically speaking, there is some discussion and debate about whether or not that sculpture was white in the first place. There's an exhibition on at the Met at the moment called Chroma Ancient Sculpture in Colour, and it's basically contending with this idea that Greek and Roman sculptures that we think are like white or that pale yellow of the, the material that they're made of were actually that colour. And yeah. the chances are that probably they were painted. The question comes as to like why they look the way they do now and why we have such a strong notion of them being this color mm. and the two arguments you can make is basically one you know the passing of time aging pigments are ephemeral especially when they're on sculptures that are usually outside yeah exposed to the elements you know we all won't last that long exactly like our skin is not made to do that uh mm -hmm. you put your shoes outside in the sun for too long and they're they're like gone they haven't even tried to like live a century no, let alone several. But then the other argument that comes about as well is this idea that maybe they were done in order to push forward this racist message, basically. Because hair colour, eye colour, skin colour can tell you a lot about representation and race and yeah. what society at that time looked like. And there is this common conception that we have of even with egyptians like we're not going to get into this today but like no. the amount of pictures i've seen of egyptians being whitewashed they are so pale yeah for people who live in the desert i mean why and this comes back to how artworks then and now will represent the cultural ideals of the time that they exist in so some people when they paint a figure that's meant to be an ultimate absolute beauty like cleopatra yep they will project and they will fixate more on that idea of an ultimate absolute beauty than they would on what they actually thought Cleopatra looked like. Yes. And Cleopatra <laughs> shouldn't be white. 
but is often depicted as white, probably for that reason, or paler skinned even. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, I think, really was the choice for Cleopatra. You know, she was chosen to reflect the beauty standards of the time. She was that very 1950s glamorous movie star. There is this iconic nature to Elizabeth Taylor doing that, and we're still contending with those questions. So it's definitely a greater conversation that we need to have in more detail. But Mm. when it comes to restorations, there are quite a few stories out there of these sculptures where in order to better appease the white ideal of classical sculpture, classical art, classical Roman and Greek creative production, that the colour has been like sanded off basically in order to uphold that ideal, in order for there to be less record of the coloured painted versions of these sculptures. So according to this exhibition, the white was always supposed to be a blank canvas, but we have decided that we would like to de-arsify. De-arsify. <laughs> we would she like to- that Neutrogenia face wipes out, she's de-arsifying. She's de-arsifying. She step skincare routine, going to bed with a clear face. And the damage in this case is basically that probably this happened without a lot of record of what they looked like before mm. they were de-arsified. It's much more difficult to restore something if you didn't know what it looked like than at least if you had an inkling of what it looked like. Yeah. So now we have to go into the wide, wide realm of deduction, which opens possibilities. Lots of research, lots of academia needs to be done in order to come to some conclusions about what most likely was the colours that were used to depict this or that or this or that, right? Mm, yeah. And That will inevitably mean that should we choose to paint the sculptures that we have, what colours should they be? We all will have our own interpretations as per the subjectivity of art and the restoration process there just becomes so much harder. Absolutely. I agree with you there, Michelle. Art's always subjective. It's always reflective of its times. And who is going to make these decisions and how are we going to make these decisions? I think will shape our conversations going forwards. And then I think the final couple of examples we want to give one falls very closely in the category of restoration boo-boos and then one a lot more loosely but so much more joyfully the first one is about another cultish icon king tutankhamun yes what happened here oh boy it should come to no surprise that ancient egyptian sculptures are over three thousand years old and therefore very 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 delicate at the egyptian museum in cairo some of the staff were trying to clean the mask of Tutankhamun. Mm -hmm. It's a shiny little yassified face. Exactly, it is a bit of a dust. We have to zhuzh it and during the zhuzh, the beard portion of the mask, which is this very pointed, narrow, skinny beard, it's a protruding part of the unit and therefore it is very delicate. It snapped off. Dunno! And what did they do about it? Normally what you'd be expected to do is immediately report the damage so that people are aware of it, people know what it looks like, and people can do their best to rectify it. These guys, however, maybe they were panicked, maybe they didn't know, maybe they panic, panic, one brain cell. They decided to try to glue the beard on by themselves with household epoxy glue, which is definitely not museum safe and definitely not your go-to restoration material of choice. No. I mean, it was going to be strong. They wanted it to stay on. It's a step up from your little PVA glue, little glue stick moment. They could have duct taped it on. But no, they went for epoxy. I think that was, you know, out of all the choices, it was yeah. serviceable. Serviceable. It was still on display. And they were like, nothing happened here. Just like, we did it. Yeah, they did it. And then when they eventually discovered this and they were trying to remove the epoxy blue, they accidentally 
scratched the surface of the face when using the spatula to try to get it off because some of the glue had dripped onto King Tut's face. I mean, it just gets worse. It just keeps happening and it doesn't stop happening. The dim lights of the display apparently were intentional in helping to uh, not emphasise this the, the area of the face where the damage mm. had occurred. Yeah. As you do, as you do. Thankfully, subsequently, after a lot of very delicate handling, they were able to get the head back into a very good condition. However, in the midst of that, the then head of restoration at the Egyptian Museum, Ihem Abdel Rahman, was transferred to the Royal Coaches Museum in Bulak, which is a very polite diplomatic firing, if you ask me. Well, you know, no harm done. And as you said, it's 3,000 years old. It had a good run. Yep. Thankfully, in this case, this was something that could be fixed. That's probably made a bit easier by how sturdy the materials were that made this. They did not use egg yolks and egg whites no. in, in the construction of this funerary mask. Tutankhamun was thinking ahead. They had that dynastic thinking. They wanted yeah. it to last for a thousand years and, you know, so it, so it did. A German restoration specialist, Christian Eggman, said that there is no actual endangering of the mask. The measures that have been taken are reversible. I think they're just a little bit more delicately reversible than they would have desired. It's not a clean swipe, swipe, varnish off, new varnish no. on situation. No. But we are in a place where this mask is still on display. People can still go visit it and it looks pretty yeah. good. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. Let's now come to our final story, last but not least. Certainly yeah. not least in this case. Certainly not least. Yeah, so this is a nice little story uh, that popped up earlier in the year of a security guard who drew eyes on a painting during one of his shifts. His first shift, I believe it was. So this one happened at the Yeltsin Center in Ekaterinburg, where Alexander Vasiliev was on his first shift as a security guard. And he says he was sort of egged on to buy some teenagers to draw eyes on a painting. And you know, who has not felt the peer pressure of teenagers? The works that were on display were 20th century works by Anna Lipovskaya. She was an avant-garde painter and she drew figures that had faces but no features on the faces. was typical of her style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these very minimal pieces, no faces. So, you know, we've all thought perhaps we could improve an artwork and he took it into his own hands and drew eyes on the painting. With ballpoint pen. Now, Michelle and I have worked in galleries in these invigilator security roles, and one of the first things we're taught is no pens in the gallery, only pencils, but also don't touch the artwork. <laughs> but, you know, it was his first shift. Yeah, Michelle, what are your thoughts? What went through your mind when you saw this? My first thoughts were, oh no, and then I saw the paintings and I was like, that's pretty cute. Yeah, I think it's a nice little addition. It's like that phenomenon where people used to constantly stick googly eyes to things to make them into faces. Mm. That's what it reminded me of, of that like really endearing cuteness of that. Yeah, it was. It was very, very sweet. So I believe the work has been restored, which is great, and the rest of the pieces were put under protective screens, lest anyone else is tempted to add their own additions to the artworks. Again, it was sort of nice that the artwork could be returned to how it was and they had vision of um, what the artworks were like originally. It's just a nice little 
Vasiliev was a decorated veteran of the Afghan and Chechen wars. So, like, there was a lot going on in this saga as well. But Mm -hmm. I think the thing that made it stick in Isabel and my brains is basically the fact that these paintings did look really, really cute. It was obviously a disfigurement, and it is a shame because there is power and impact in the original paintings, which is Mm. why it's good that they were restored. But this little blip in the saga is very, very endearing and kind Mm. of adds something to the, the mythology behind the work and the paintings, right? Yeah. Because, like, I hadn't heard of this artist before, the Soviet painter. He was a student of Kazimir Malevich. Yes, yes, they were. Um, so Malevich was a great of the constructivist movement, which really focused on painting as a tool and sort of reducing painting down to its bare elements, which end up being these big blocks of colour big shapes. At the end of August, Alexander Vasiliev, so our lovely little security guard, pleaded guilty of vandalism and asked to serve 180 hours of compulsory labor and undergo psychic evaluation. was a very expensive painting, but there was a lot going on in his life and he did claim emotional and psychological related stresses as well. I love this little quote from his second wife that described him as absolutely normal in daily life but also said that in some ways he was naive as a child and weren't they lovely naive childlike eyes they were i would like to see perhaps an exhibition of all his improvements of artworks i think he has a nice vision yeah but i think once again very important painting but it is just a painting we shouldn't be executing someone over a painting absolutely not This man has fought in wars, like, very different stakes at hand here, you would think. Yes. That basically runs our gamut, I think. Sometimes we we have our fun crimes, we have our more nefariously motivated crimes, Mm. we have our fun changes, and we have our more (laughs) stress-inducing changes in the process of restoring artwork. Every now and then there will be a fun story of restoration and we'll be sure to bring those to your attention when they come up. In the meantime, though, if this episode has piqued your interest on restoration, highly, highly encouraged, watch a restoration video, a stripping of the varnish video. Absolutely satisfying. Absolutely mesmerizing. Highly Mm. recommend. Yes, highly, highly recommend. It is just a sight to behold. And you can almost like play a little game where you can guess what colors are underneath. Like, what's it going to look like? So many things to do. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, where can they find us as well if they want to hear more of our thoughts? Well, they can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g double underscore. And you can find me at belllake5 on Twitter. So that's at b-e-l-l-a-k-e. You can also find the podcast. We've got some social media handles as well, Michelle. Take us through them. So you can find Crimes Against Art on Instagram and Twitter at Art Crimes Pod. We are part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find Edge of the Crowd on any social media as Edge of the Crowd. So that includes YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, everything and anything. Everywhere. MySpace? MySpace? Probably. Yes. We'll get onto it. Yeah. Edge of the Crowd MySpace. It's going to be the hot place to be. Mm -hmm. You can also read any of our articles about art, culture, politics, sport at edgeofthecrowd.com fabulous well there's so much to look forward to and so much more art crimes to chat through thank you for joining us today and we'll say goodbye and see you later thank you for listening